Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Alfred Desayas, who's a former UN independent expert, senior lawyer with the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and professor at my alma mater, the Geneva School of Diplomacy, uh, where I was also his student, uh, and he's got many more accomplishments. He grew up uh, in my hometown of Chicago uh, as well, and he's the author of many books, including his latest, Countering Mainstream Narratives, Fake News, Fake Law, Fake Freedom, and the Human Rights Industry. Welcome back to Geopolitics and Empire, Alfred. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here again. It's great to uh, connect. Uh, I think back in 2008, Nine. Uh, I was a student at Geneva School, and I think this is your probably like your third appearance on the, on the podcast. I saw you were recently on TNT Radio as well, where I've also got a show. You were with uh, Dirk uh, Pullman, I think. And so uh, I thought maybe we'd start discussing your book. I just finished reading Countering Mainstream Narratives. It's it's fantastic, uh, and I, I love your rants on Twitter X uh, as well. <laughs> Uh, and, and in the first or second page of the book, you, you talk about, you know, it's it's the fake news West, basically. You mentioned the Dis- Disinformation Governance Board. And I don't know if you know, but in 2000, April of 2022, when they rolled that out with Nina Yankowitz, <laughs> yeah. consor- Consortium News, Mint Press News, and me, I also got banned from PayPal uh as part of a part of that group and so you're sort of you know in the book you talk about a slick form of totalitarianism which has become the new normal and how dissenters are being canceled by government uh, and big tech uh and it's it's all destroying what's left of our democracy and you often talk about uh this fake democracy in the west so you know your further thoughts on all this well democracy means that the sovereign is a people and uh, the sovereign have genuine choices. I'm an American citizen. I'm also a Swiss citizen. But uh, as an American citizen, I'm totally disenfranchised. If I vote for a Republican or for a Democrat, I get the same thing on fundamentals. Which are the fundamentals? The Republican is going to be for the military-industrial complex. Democrat also. The Republican is going to be for Wall Street, not for mainstream. Main Street. Uh, same for the Democrat. The Republican is going to be for Israel. Also, uh, the Democrat. They're both committed to war, to make America great again, you know, to uh, impose our will on the rest of the world. So it's this animus dominandi of both parties. You're not going to elect, I will vote for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in November, but he's not going to be elected. Back in 2020, I wrote in, as write-in candidate, Tulsi Gabbard. And in 2016, I wrote in Bernie Sanders. But when you have a choice between uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton, what kind of a choice is that? And when I have a choice uh, between Trump and Biden. Uh, So I feel like it's a pro forma exercise. And the mainstream media or the mass media tries to convince you that we are the greatest democracy in the world and that it functions. But 
what I see all over is a total disconnect. Government doesn't give a damn about what the people want or what the people need. Government is there for the elites. Government is there to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. And uh, the trickle-down theory of Ayn Rand, for instance, that's all nonsense. I mean, it doesn't trickle down. And uh, the poor are getting poorer. And the conditions in the United States, a rich country, I mean, it's disgraceful. When you're in New York and you're walking to the United Nations, as I had to, to present my report to the GAA, or when I was secretary of the Human Rights Committee, uh, to walk from the um, Murray Hill East, which was cheaper than the Millennium Hotel. Uh, I would walk from uh, 39th Street uh, and Lexington over to uh, First Avenue and 42nd. And gosh, how many homeless I saw sleeping in refrigerator boxes against the wall. I mean, for a rich country, that is possible. And these people, of course, die of pneumonia. They die of um, bronchitis. Uh, they die just simply of um, hypothermia. And uh, I would like to say, <laughs> not in my name. Uh, but there's nothing I can do about it because not my senator and not my congressman uh, cares about it. They care about giving more money to Ukraine to uh, fight till the last Ukrainian with American money uh, to try to weaken uh, Russia. And um, the European countries are not much better, certainly not the United Kingdom, France, Germany. Happily, I reside in Geneva, Switzerland, and I am very active uh, in uh, politics here. My my wife is even conseillère municipale. Uh, she is uh, even more active than I am. Uh, but we feel like we are part of uh, the conduct of public affairs. Uh, we have every year, I would say at least uh 2025 issues that are put up uh for referendum besides the regular elections uh because we in the west think uh democracy is representative democracy but wait a minute do they represent us or whom are they represented i don't feel represented by my senator or by my uh, uh, congresswoman. And uh, that being the case, uh, they don't consult me. They don't inform me what's important. They go ahead. They pass uh, trillion-dollar budgets uh, for the Pentagon. Uh, and we have to um, just <laughs> grin and bear it. So that is a very dysfunctional uh, democracy that we have. And of course, for any democracy to function, you need access to information. 
Article 19 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights guarantees access to information. It's not just freedom of opinion, freedom of expression. It's the freedom to access what you need to develop an opinion, and it's that opinion that uh, should be respected. And when uh, a professor is canceled, when a news service is canceled, when uh, Tucker Carlson is sent off by Fox, uh, etc., is not just his right to his opinion and his right to disseminate his opinion that is affected is my right to hear him. I want to hear Tucker Carlson or I want to hear uh, Oliver Stone. Uh, if the mass media suppresses uh, what comes from dissenting views, then democracy is being undermined because the people are not well informed. And uh, in uh, Germany, I used to write regularly op-eds for Die Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. I used to write op-eds for Die Welt. I even wrote for the Spiegel and for Die Zeit. That's gone. I mean, the last contact I had with them was 2011. Uh, the uh, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung had asked me uh, to write a full page, which I did. The editor who asked me was very pleased with the article. And then six weeks later, I get a letter from the uh, uh, editors of the newspaper excusing themselves that, um, after all, they decided not to publish the article. Uh, and uh, that they would offer me a what they call in German an Ausfall Honorar. Uh, that is, they would pay me a royalty for not publishing. And I felt that that was such an insult that uh, obviously I did not accept being just bought off like that. I mean, it's a matter of honor. I mean, if you ask me for an article and I write an article that is solid, I expect to see that article published. Otherwise, don't bother me. Don't ask me. So my answer to them was three words. Götz von Berlichingen. That is a very famous play by uh, Goethe. And uh, Götz von Berlichingen is known for what is called the Schwäbische Groß the Swabian greeting. And the Swabian greeting is Leck mich am Arsch. Just get out of here. Don't bother me. And translated into English is you can kiss my ass. And that is what I sent to the editors of the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And that was the last time any newspaper in Germany asked me for an op-ed, or I just didn't bother anymore. So the um, culture of uh, journalism in, in Germany is gone. Uh, the German media is completely aligned with the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CNN, 
It's all politically correct and cancel culture. And um, it's dismaying because that disease is also spreading into Switzerland. I remember writing a lot of articles uh, for the Tribune de Genève. I haven't written one probably for 10 years. And I also used to give interviews to uh, the Courrier de Genève. I think the last one I had was uh, 2018. Uh, so things are getting worse, even in Switzerland, uh, where uh, they are just putting on this cruise and they don't want certain opinions uh, being disseminated. Of course, this is for, shall we say, the elites in the West, uh, too little too late, uh, because uh, whether they like it or not, uh, the world has changed enormously. We are no longer the unipolar world of uh, Washington and Brussels. Uh, we are a multipolar world, and the global majority in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, is not with the United States and with Brussels. Not anymore. I mean, the Indians, the Chinese, the Indonesians. Don't forget the Indonesians with their 280 million human beings. The Brazilians, the Mexicans, the uh, South Africans, they count. And they don't like the United States. And uh, there is a certain solipsism in Washington and in academia in the United States that still lives from the illusion that we are number one and that everybody looks up to the United States. That's not the case anymore. People are not looking up to the United States. They're seeing the United States as a rogue state. And when I say a rogue state, I would go even further. United States and NATO are one and the same. NATO had published about that can very easily bear the label of a criminal organization. Don't be shocked. I repeat it. NATO deserves the label, the characterization as a criminal organization for purposes of Articles 9 and 10 of the Statute of uh, the International Military Tribunal for Nuremberg, that is the London Agreement of 8 August 1945, and also for purposes of the Nuremberg Judgment of 1946 that defined uh, what was a criminal organization and found three German organizations uh, to fit that definition. So, uh, NATO, why would it fall in this category? Obviously, when NATO was founded uh, back in uh, uh, 1949, I mean, NATO uh, was a legitimate defense alliance. I mean, Stalin was aggressive. Stalin was saber-rattling. Stalin had a huge army, and Stalin had 
the power, if you want it, uh, to invade all of Europe. The only defense is the atomic weapon, and that is why the United States threw not one but two atomic uh, bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki just to tell the Russians, watch it, you're next. If you don't do what we tell you, you're next. But still, uh, you prefer a conventional war if you can have it conventional. So you wanted to have a powerful NATO army on the continent in, uh, in Europe. And that's how the organization emerged. It's actually compatible at the time uh, with Articles 52, 53, 54 uh, of the um, United Nations Charter that provides for the possibility of regional organizations. But then the articles say, provided that the regional organizations act in conformity with the United Nations Charter and with the object and purpose of the organization, meaning respect for the sovereignty of states, prohibition of the use of force, um, obligation to negotiate uh, and to settle differences uh, by peaceful means, etc., etc. The moment the organization engages in aggression, it has no legitimacy anymore and is acting contrary to the UN Charter. So that is when you uh, cross the Rubicon. That is when in 1997, uh, Bill Clinton decides to disregard the commitments made by George H.W. Bush, Bush father, and by his Secretary of State, uh, James Baker, uh, not to advance one inch toward the East. So, in 1997, the uh, doors were open, and then, of course, Czechoslovakia, Poland, etc., entered. And uh, that was very much objected to by Russia that felt that it had been betrayed, that it had been taken for a ride. And um, at that time, it was Boris Yeltsin, a drunkard, a hopeless individual. So he didn't have much credibility or much authority, and he couldn't make his point understood. Um, it was only when Putin, in the year 2000, more or less caught uh, Russia in freefall, uh, that he started um, putting his foot down and saying, look, guys, we want to be friends. I respect you. You respect us, huh? That's a deal. And he, his speech in uh, the Munich Security Conference of 2007, about which I have published, uh, is a brilliant speech. And he says it in a very diplomatic way, in a very civilized way, in a way very much consistent uh, with Article 2, Paragraph 3 of the UN Charter, saying, look, guys, we want a modus vivendi. Let's make it. We want a um, European security architecture that is good for everybody. Good for you, good for us. And so he's 
sent that message out until 2008 when uh, George W. Bush, Bush Jr., uh, decided at a uh, NATO meeting uh, that uh, Georgia and Ukraine would be invited. That was really not one, but two red lines, because no country wants to be encircled. And um, besides, uh, Georgia is certainly not a North Atlantic country, neither is Ukraine. As the case may be, uh, the protests of uh, uh, Putin and of Medvedev uh, were ignored. Things start getting worse because the United States uh, starts undermining Ukraine and the Ukraine uh, democracy. Now, in Ukraine, you have the democratically elected president of all Ukrainians, Viktor Yanukovych. Now, Viktor Yanukovych uh, was more or less a peaceful man. He didn't want to throw the army against dissenters. And uh, as we know from uh, Ivan Kaczynski, this uh, researcher in uh, the University of Ottawa, is a professor. I, I, I've interviewed him. On, I've interviewed him on, large, on, my, on my TNT uh, show. Yeah, important interview, not interview, uh, study uh, of the uh, Maidan violence, which did not come from the government, which did not come from Yanukovych, but came as false flag you know, from uh, the Maidan uh, radicals and fanatics that were, of course, being financed uh, by Europe and by the United States. So you have an arrangement, a treaty, uh, signed by uh, the French, the Poles, uh, the Germans, Maidan, and Yanukovych. And... Uh, Yanukovych actually bends to them, and although he still had two more years to go as president, agrees to advance the elections. Notwithstanding uh, this enormous concession from the legitimate head of state, uh, the Maidan uh, fanatics uh, broke the uh, treaty, and um, if Yanukovych had not fled for his life, I have no doubt he would have been killed. But all this time, Yanukovych could have done uh, what uh, the president of Kazakhstan did back two years ago when the United States tried to stage a uh, color revolution uh, in uh, Kazakhstan. He just threw the army against them. He just mopped it up. And uh, Yanukovych didn't want to kill uh, any Ukrainians. So he decided to leave, naively thinking that that was the end uh, of the conflict. And uh, if the illegal, unconstitutional parliament uh, had uh, said, okay, we got rid of this uh Russophile Yanukovych. Now let's uh, heal wounds. Let's uh, open our arms and say, "Good, 
we're all Ukrainians. We love you Russians from the Donbass. We love you Russians uh, from the Crimea, etc., etc. Uh, we love you Russians from the Odessa. And what happened? They massacred 50 uh, Russians in Odessa. Uh, they started bombarding uh, the uh, Donbass region, uh, Lugansk and Slavyansk. Uh, and uh, well, uh, obviously, under those conditions, uh, the uh, Russian population uh, of uh, Crimea said, goodbye, forget it. I mean, uh, we were never Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainian population here is only about 12%. And uh, we don't recognize the unconstitutional regime uh, in Kiev. And first, they hold a referendum. They invite the United Nations. They invite the OECD. They invite uh, the EU to send observers. None of them send observers, would you believe? Of course, the referendum takes place. Uh, more than 90% uh, vote uh, for independence, first independence. After they vote for independence, the parliament uh, takes an unilateral declaration of independence that gets published, gets sent to Kiev. And uh, so far, so good. No violence, no one killed. No blood. What happens next? They fear that they're going to be attacked because it's not a, uh, shall we say, a peace-loving parliament there. Uh, they're, you know, up to no good, these people. So they make a decision. We're independent. We have declared ourselves independent, just like Kosovo declared itself independent. We have the legitimacy of a referendum. We invited everybody to come and uh, watch the referendum. If they didn't come, that's their problem, not ours. So they make an official request to uh, the uh, Russian government uh, to be reincorporated into Russia. Remembering that uh, uh, it had always been part of what is called the Russian Oblast. And it had been administratively transferred by Khrushchev, a Ukrainian, uh, in the 1950s from the Russian Oblast to the Ukrainian Oblast, which of course didn't mean anything in the 1950s because everything was decided in Moscow anyhow. It was the Soviet Union. But the moment that Ukraine splits unconstitutionally, because they did not follow the rules for its uh, departure from, um, uh, from the Soviet Union, um, they took with them Crimea, and they took with them the Donbass, which was overwhelmingly Russian. Uh, so far, so good, as long as you didn't have a Russophobic parliament and a Russophobic president uh, who, for whatever reason, hated the Russians. So uh, at the Duma, the Russian parliament, they examine their request. 
And after due consideration, they approve reincorporating Crimea into Russia. It's not the end of the story. The Constitutional Court in Moscow still had to approve it. Is it within the power of the Duma to approve this request? Is it constitutional? And the answer is yes. And only then does it get signed by Putin. A perfect example of the realization of the right of all peoples to self-determination peacefully, without killing anybody. Uh, and the wor world doesn't want to accept it. Washington rejects it, and uh, Berlin rejects it, and London rejects it. You know why? I mean, they had far stronger case than the Kosovars, far stronger. And there was the president of Kosovo, and there was the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice of uh, July uh, 2010, which very clearly said in paragraph 80 uh, that uh, self-determination actually is superior to territorial integrity. History shows how the territorial integrity of all countries has changed uh, over the decades, over the centuries. There's nothing sacred about uh, the frontiers. And there's something that you can change, certainly uh, in a peaceful manner, uh, by agreement. And that is reflected in the Helsinki Final Act of 1975. So you would think that, uh, you know, the West has no leg to stand on. Here's where propaganda, uh, media manipulation, uh, fake narratives come in. Uh, simply by repeating that Russia annexed uh, Crimea, you put a stamp of something legal, illegitimate. It was eminently legal, and it was eminently legitimate, and it was just. It reflected the will of the people of Crimea. Ditto in the Donbass. Now, nobody wanted a war in the Donbass. Certainly not the Russian population. They expected that their right to self-determination would be just as respected as the right of self-determination of the Kosovars. It's not the case. Ukraine tried by force of arms, with tanks, with artillery, with airplanes to bombard uh, Lugansk and uh, Slavyansk, etc. Uh, so, you get uh, the Minsk Agreement number one, 2014, violated immediately by Ukraine. That leads to more violence than you get in Minsk Agreement number two. And if the Minsk Agreement had been respected, everything would have been fine. It did not even demand secession, did not envisage independence uh, for the Donbass. It only envisaged that what we term as internal 
self-determination. That the Russian population of uh, this large region would have autonomy. They would have linguistic autonomy, cultural autonomy. They could uh, have their schools and their traditions and uh, what have you uh, as part of Ukraine, but not uh, as an independent state. Of course, that depended on negotiation. Part of the Minsk agreement was that you needed direct negotiation between uh, Ukraine and the leaders of the Donbas. Ukraine refused. And then all this time, you have uh, the United States and Europe stationing more and more and more lethal weapons uh, in Ukraine, close to the frontier with Russia. And uh, Russia kept sending signals. Uh, please don't do this, you know. Uh, this constitutes an existential threat. And as you probably know, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter prohibits not only the use of force, but it certainly prohibits the threat of the use of force. Now here, NATO, NATO countries have been threatening with the use of force uh, for decades, basically since the 1990s. And uh, this very threat is a violation of uh, the UN Charter that constitutes a threat to international peace and security. Article 39 of the Charter, Article 99 uh, of the Charter. Putin, of course, feels that he's been taken for a ride. Putin uh, participates in conferences with the OSCE, participates in the so-called Normandy format. And uh, we learned last year, or was it 2022, sometime I think in the summer of 2022, that uh, for me incomprehensible that uh, Angela Merkel would, in an interview with Zeit, would confess that she never intended to keep the Minsk agreements because they were one of the guarantors of the Minsk agreements, that she'd only entered into the Minsk agreements to gain time so that Ukraine uh, could be armed uh, against Russia. I mean, this is such bad faith. I mean, such a just massive violation of the uh, uh, Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties that it's really breathtaking. And it's breathtakingly stupid uh, to say so. I mean, I have no doubt that that was always the case. But don't say it. It's like uh, you're actually confessing that you deliberately cheated, that you deliberately lied to a powerful nuclear country on a matter of life and death. If that was not bad enough, then France, this Halberportion, uh, uh, as you would say in German, uh, this 
mediocre. Francois Hollande, who at that moment was the president of France, agrees with uh, Angela Merkel and also says, oh, that's the same reason why I joined uh, in the Minsk agreement uh, so that we could gain time. Again, what kind of people are we in the West? Do we have any ethics? Do we have any credibility? Do we deserve respect from the rest of the international community? When in matters of this importance, uh, we play with life and death uh, like that. Well, uh, in any event, NATO has a very ugly history of violence. NATO breaks the UN Charter in uh, conducting aggressive war, destroying the territorial integrity of Serbia and Montenegro deliberately without any approval of the Security Council, just bypassing the United Nations, just go there and bomb the hell out of the Serbs and impose regime change and impose what we want. Uh, using cluster uh, bombs, using depleted uranium, using all sorts of prohibited weapons, uh, and they get away with it. These are all war crimes. And uh, war crimes in complete impunity, which then they repeat in Afghanistan, and they repeat in Iraq, 2003. I mean, uh, what NATO did in Iraq was nothing less than a revolt against international law, against the United Nations Charter, against the authority of the Security Council. And, uh, you know, maybe a million uh, uh, Iraqis, who cares, they're only Iraqis, stole their uh, oil, uh, imposed uh, an illegal regime uh, in Baghdad, uh, and uh, then NATO participates in shall we say, cheating the Russians and the Chinese who approved Resolution 1973 uh, of the Security Council, which was intended for humanitarian assistance to the people of Libya. It was not an approval of bombing the hell out of uh, Muammar Gaddafi or having him murdered. And uh, you will remember this grotesque YouTube, which everybody can watch, uh, of Hillary Clinton uh, saying, uh, we came, we saw, he died. And then she laughs. And this kind of stentorian, uh, blood-curdling laughter. Uh, what kind of people are they? And this woman pretended to be president of the United States of America. I mean, realize that your leaders are a bunch of rogues, uh, people with no morals, no ethics, uh, just power. 
And yeah. I, I just wanted to add, you know, since the 2000s, I've been calling NATO the North, uh, you know, North Atlantic terrorist uh, organization. And, you know, when I was when we were your students in 2008-9, I remember in Baden, uh, Germany, there was going to be this massive anti-NATO protest because NATO was meeting there. And, and a, a number of us, your, your students, we were going to attend. We were going to take the train to Baden. And this is just to what you're saying, their show of democracy, they closed the town completely. So people right. living, people living yeah. couldn't exit. And we were not able to get in to, to protest. And, and then, you know, you yeah. talk, you, you've written uh, a Global Times articles about NATO. You, in your book, you talk about how NATO has emerged as the perfect religion for bullies and warmongers, not like not unlike other expansive ideologies of the past. And then, you know, we've got the stuff that's going on with like Nord Stream. It's literally, you know, as you're giving examples, they're blowing up these pipelines, the Kerch Bridge, uh, assassinating civilians like du, uh, Alexander Dugin's. Uh um daughter Lord, and, yes and and so you, you i mean Lugina. it's right. got and now they're positing i've read articles academic white papers last year where they say they want to rename nato from north atlantic treaty organization to new alliance treaty organization to make it ba basically a global worldwide uh, worldwide yeah. military force so you know you, your thoughts on that and then well, um, uh, on, on, on the escalation are you know are we headed into it, world war three because of its prehistory nato has proven to be a criminal organization so uh there's no incentive for any new country uh, to want to enter a criminal organization it is incompatible with the united nations charter and uh i would like to see governments uh like hungary like um uh, uh slovakia uh, like slovenia simply to turn their backs on NATO and say, sorry, because of your track record of crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity in Afghanistan and Iraq and in Libya, etc., and because of your current animus dominandi, because of your current um, uh, expansive craze, uh, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You are not a an organization allowed by the United Nations Charter in uh, Chapter 8. So uh, it should be dismantled. It should have been dismantled already in 1991 when uh, the Warsaw Pact uh, was dismantled. And what it has done is has tried to take advantage of the weakness of Russia in the 1990s to usurp the powers of the Security Council, to usurp the powers of the United Nations and become uh, the world policeman. Well, nobody legitimizes that. It would only be, um, shall we say, by force of arms, by conquest, uh, that NATO would uh, achieve that. But of course, there's been major pushback. And it's no question that uh, NATO wants to expand into the Asia-Pacific area. 
it's already creating problems uh, with Taiwan and with the South China Sea and the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the House of Cards is going to crumble, but uh, it is up to the media, it's up to independent journalists to convince large swathes of the population in the United States, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, uh, that they're up to no good, that uh, NATO has morphed from a legitimate organization uh, into a dangerous threat for the survival of the planet, for the survival of humanity. And for that reason, it must be dismantled. And uh, I think that the credibility uh, of the United States has suffered so much uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years. Certainly. Uh, in connection with the cynical way we have uh, sent Ukrainian boys into the meat grinder, uh, the cynical way uh, that uh, we have supported um, Israel. I mean, we have a system of international justice, the highest institution or institute of international justice uh, is the uh, International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice has issued an order uh, to Israel to stop doing A, B, C, D, and E. Israel has continued, and the United States has supported it. It's quite clear that applying objectively the Genocide Convention of 1948, Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. It falls under Articles uh, uh, 2, A, B, C, and E, uh, and it certainly falls under Article 3. And what is even worse for me as an American, the United States' actions in supporting Israel in blocking three times the uh, ceasefire resolution at the Security Council, in continuing to arm uh, Israel, have to consider that Palestinians are being killed with American weapons. That being the case, we completely fall under Article 3 paragraph E. We are complicit in the genocide. And I take advantage of this opportunity to call on your listeners, whether they be in Mexico or in Brazil or in the uh, United States or in Canada or whatever, push governments. You only need one, but it would be best to have a consortium of governments that would invoke Article 9 of the Genocide Convention and send the case by referral, automatic referral, doesn't have to go through the Security Council or through the General Assembly. It goes straight to the International Court of Justice because you have here a dispute 
on the application or interpretation of the Genocide Convention. Does Article 3E apply to the United States? What uh, the United States has done in the Security Council in blocking uh, a resolution to stop the genocide makes the United States complicit in the genocide. That can go to the International Court of Justice. It's not just accusing uh, Israel of committing the genocide. It's accusing the United States and all countries that deliver weapons uh, to Israel as being complicit in the genocide. That is important also for the perception uh, of the law. People should come to understand that the West, not the East, not China, not India, not Indonesia, the West, United States, Canada, United Kingdom, we are in revolt against international law. We are in revolt against the Genocide Convention and against the United Nations. Uh, that has to be felt. That has to be internalized. And that we're not there yet because the power of the media is so pervasive, is so thoroughgoing that people are essentially indoctrinated. We in the West, you will remember it because you did it in your high school the same as I did. I pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, etc., etc., every morning. We are educated to believe that we are the good guys by definition. And that means that the others are the bad guys. If we are the good guys, the others are the bad guys. This is actually a James Bond syndrome. Uh, we've watched too many James Bond movies. Uh, we are convinced that we have the right to kill, targeted killings. We have the right because we're the good guys. Uh, we have a binary approach to the world. Uh, we have divided the world into democracies and autocracies. We self-define ourselves as being democracies, although we're not. And then we invent the fable that democracies do not start wars, that democracies are not aggressive. It's all fake. As I said, we're living in a world of not only fake news, we have fake history, we have uh, fake law. We have fake diplomacy and, of course, fake uh, democracy. I explain that in this book, Building a Just World Order. I explained it further in the human rights industry. And uh, coming back to uh, our commitment uh, to make peace in the world, and that is the Alpha and Omega of the United Nations. We're useless if we cannot make peace in the world and we cannot mediate uh, peace. Uh, but before we can effectively act, uh, we have to understand 
And there's such a veil. We are living in such a bubble. As I said, uh, we are swimming in an ocean of lies. Our governments lie to us on a daily basis. And uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, instead of being the watchdogs of our rights, they are just the echo chambers of what Washington wants and what the Pentagon wants. So uh, the result uh, is uh, that most Americans and Canadians really believe the propaganda. They have not come to perceive uh, Washington as a rogue government. They have not come to perceive NATO as a criminal organization. Uh, we'll get there. I am persuaded because there is Max Blumenthal with his uh, gray zone. There's Aaron, Aaron Maté with the pushback. There is the Real News Network. There's Amy Goodman with uh, Democracy Now, etc. There are more and more people who are aware of what's going on. And then brilliant professors. I mean, uh, I correspond regularly uh, with uh, John Mearsheimer. I correspond uh, with uh, Richard Falk, with Professor uh, Jeffrey Sachs, with Professor Dan Kovalik, with Professor Stephen Kinzer, with Professor Francis Boyle. There's plenty of us uh, who actually have understood how the game is being played. Uh, but I would say the masses of the population uh, are still just as indoctrinated as the masses of a population in Oceania in George Orwell's 1984. I mean, we have a culture of hatred. I mean, we are taught to hate the Russians. We are taught to hate the Chinese. And it's almost knee-jerk. Nobody even thinks, why should we hate them? No, no, we were supposed to hate them. Uh, it's part of patriotism. And uh, that is the approach. You remember uh, in 1984, hate week. That's uh, one of the chapters that I mean, remember reading it like 50 years ago and I say, oh, wow. <laughs> and the, the fact is exercise in hate and this exercise in hate is being propagated by the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, etc., etc. And if you want to be in, you have to hate Russians. You want to be in, you have to hate, hate Chinese and say bad things about them. And then you feel good. It, it, it's it's totally sick, uh, but that is the situation that obtains. You mentioned Kovalik, uh, Kinzer, Boyle, all of who've been guests on this podcast, and in fact, um, I'm I'm featured in Boyle's latest book, Resisting Medical Tyranny. It's my interview with him that uh, on on COVID when we kind of got famous, and uh, I, I just something I want to go back to. You often use in your commentary terms like describing the West, Orwellian, totalitarian, dystopia, and myself also being an EU citizen, a Croatian citizen, uh, just as you know, you are, uh, you have multiple citizenships as well. I'm really bothered with this, as, as you described, but this farce, this this hypocrisy that we're seeing in Brussels and EU wide uh, as well. And something that sort of enca encapsulates this was this recent speech by uh, Polish MEP Jacek Sadiusz-Wolski, who said, 
EU is no longer a peaceful organization. It's an empire. They're building an empire. Um, and the political mega plan is to build Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok with the neglect of the wishes and will of the people, as you often mentioned. And he says, we from Central Eastern Europe, we feel it by our skin. The EU is a communist inspiration project. We didn't rejoin Europe to fall back into the communist project. And I'm very fed up with, you know, the Ursula van der Leyen's uh, and, you know, um, any further thoughts on the, on the farce uh, that is the EU and its, you know, quote, democracy? Well, it, it is a scam. Uh, the EU was a great idea when it was the common market before it became uh, a political machine, before it was hijacked by certain elites. I mean, they're hand in hand. Uh, with Soros, they're hand-in-hand with the World Economic uh, Forum, and uh, what they want is power and uh, self-perpetuation of this elite, not of anybody else, just the elite. And what is particularly shocking, I am a practicing Catholic, and uh, personally, I am against uh, liberal abortion. I approve abortions uh, in cases of rape, in cases where the health of the mother uh, is uh, at stake, etc., etc. But I don't want to see abortion as a form of contraception, as a form of, okay, fine, I had fun last night, and, you know, a child is uh, in progress, okay, let's get rid of it. Uh, this kind of amorality uh, is something that I do not want to nurture. I don't want to cultivate it. I uh, find some people believe in it, and I respect the opinions of others. But when uh, Brussels is trying to impose its views on abortion, its views on the LGBT, etc., on the rest of Europe, and you will recall that in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, you have, uh, shall we say, a recognition, Articles 18, Articles 19, uh, that um, governments uh, have the right uh, to impose certain restrictions based on moral and health considerations. And uh, when uh, Slovakia or Hungary or Poland have uh, these restrictions, that is now contrary to EU interpretation of the law. And uh, there again, one of the problems that I deal with in uh, the human rights industry, the hijacking of the institutions, quis custodiet ipsos custodis, what do you do when the organizations that are there to protect your rights are actually the organizations that are betraying you, the organizations that are throwing you before the bus? Uh, that is the problem with the EU. That is the problem with the European Court of Human Rights. There's a whole series of judgments uh, of the European Court of Human Rights that are just purely political. 
political, ideological. They have nothing to do with the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. In fact, they are contrary to it. And here you have judges doing that. So my uh, great concern for the future of the institutions is that we have allowed the institutions to be corrupted, to be penetrated by ulterior interests, by intelligence services, and that they're playing hardball with democratic governments. I mean, uh, Viktor Orban has every right to defend uh, the identity, the culture, the traditions of the Hungarian people. Every right. And the European Union has zero right to interfere in the internal affairs of Hungary, but it is doing it. And EU uh, is actually morphing into another criminal organization, not in the same manner as the NATO. I mean, uh, the European Union is not going out and slaughtering people in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Uh, but the European Union is restricting the human rights uh, of millions of people in Europe. And it's also playing double standards. It's interesting how under the Treaty of Lisbon, they have started proceedings against Hungary, against uh, Poland, uh, for so-called breaches uh, or threats uh, to the rule of law. Now, how about the situation uh, in the United Kingdom and the total uh, breakdown of the rule of law when it comes to Julian Assange? I mean, the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention determined already in 2015 that his detention was arbitrary. Myself, I visited uh, Julian Assange in 2015 uh, at the Ecuadorian uh, embassy in London. And uh, I called for his immediate release and compensation because of arbitrary detention. Then the special rapporteur on torture went to visit him at Belmarsh prison not only himself, but with a team of doctors and psychiatrists. And he concluded that uh, his conditions of detention not only were contrary to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Articles 9, 10, etc., but that it, they constituted torture, Article 7. Article 7, it constituted uh, psychological torture, within the meaning of Article 7 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, so he documents in a big book called The Trial of Julian Assange, he documents the breakdown of 
the rule of law in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, because Sweden bears an enormous responsibility for allowing its judicial system to be used politically to persecute Julian Assange, and of course Ecuador, when um, in exchange for an IMF uh, uh, loan, uh, uh, Lenin Moreno, Moreno of uh, Ecuador just sold them down the river and uh, had uh, the uh, the Brits uh, take him out uh, of the um, Ecuadorian uh, embassy in London. And it's a disgrace. Here, uh, proof of complete politicization of the administration of justice, of uh, deliberate bad faith, uh, in the application of domestic law, not international law, domestic. I mean, the, the, this entailed violations of Ecuadorian domestic law and constitutional law, violation of uh, Swedish domestic law, British domestic law, United States domestic law, etc., etc. It's a total scandal, far worse, but far worse than the Dreyfus affair uh, of uh, 1898. That time it was, of course, a, a military court that had uh, trumped up charges against uh, Alfred Dreyfus and I had him convicted and sent to Devil's Island, etc., etc. Thank God for an Emile Zola, who in his famous article, Jacques, uh, opened the Pandora's box and then uh, all hell <laughs> broke loose. You know, he spilled the beans and um, they had to allow Alfred Dreyfus uh, to come back to be rehabilitated and uh, in any event that had a happy end but the Julian Assange uh, case has not had a happy end yet in any event the man has been deprived of a good 14 years of his life uh, I mean it's been hell for him since uh, he published uh, as any journalist would uh, information that you and I have a right to have. I mean, it's something uh, that Americans don't seem to have grasped yet. Secrecy uh, is the conditio sine qua non for criminality. All criminals depend on secrecy. And our government owes us transparency and accountability. When they murder civilians in Iraq, as we saw in the film Collateral Murder, uh, when they murder civilians, when they commit really grotesque crimes, uh, this is being done in our name. I'm an American citizen. This is being done in my name. I don't want this. I reject this. And uh, I consider that uh, Assange has done the world an enormous service by uh, publishing what he published. And uh, we had two weeks ago, uh, I think it was on the 14th of uh, February, uh, a uh, um, conference about two hours uh, with the head of uh, WikiLeaks, 
Christine Hranson, and um, uh, also with the head of um, uh, Reporters Without Borders here in Geneva. We were discussing the Assange case. And um, they were not optimistic because they had given up essentially on uh, the uh, independence and the professionalism uh, of the judges in London. And seeing with what bad faith they had handled uh, the case hitherto, they had no great expectations that uh, the uh, current um, um, trial chamber uh, would um, reverse uh, the prior decision. Now, obviously, he will immediately appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. But can you trust the European Court of Human Rights? They're also sold out. They're also penetrated by intelligence services. I mean, I know some of these judges. I also know several of the judges of the International Court of Justice. And uh, why do you think they're there? Do you think that anybody would nominate uh, Francis Boyle to being a judge at the International Court of Justice? Or anybody would nominate Niels Meltzer to be a judge at the European Court of Human Rights? Of course not. These are independent minds. These are people with ethics, people who are not sold out, people who will not be sold out, people whom you cannot give instructions to. So obviously they're not going to be nominated. Uh, so not saying that uh, the judges uh, are all questionable, but some are. And uh, uh, if uh, it went to the European Court of Human Rights, and I think it would have to go there, um, there is a chance that the majority will vote against his uh, uh, extradition, or will prohibit his extradition, but uh what guarantee do you have that uh the united kingdom will respect uh the decision uh of the european court i mean they're capable and they have already said so they're capable to withdraw from the european court of human rights technically you cannot withdraw when a case is pending uh so if a case is pending uh, it's too late to withdraw. That case must go through. In view of the massive violation of the rule of law in the United Kingdom in this Assange case and in the others, it's not the only one, I don't know whether they have any intention to implement uh, a uh, decision uh, of the European Court of Human Rights. Now, um, the United States has made it a point uh, to show that uh, no one can challenge uh, the secrecy uh, of the U.S. government and that the U.S. government 
has every right to withhold information from us. That in itself, of course, is a violation of Article 19 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, but who cares in the United States? I mean, you remember the uh, Gonzalez uh, torture memos at the time of uh, George W. Bush that said, okay, torture is fine. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, waterboarding, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's this attitude that we are the law. Not only are we above the law, we are the law. We make the laws. If the laws are not convenient, we change them. And um, this is a dangerous totalitarian, dystopian situation. And uh, thank God there's Francis Boyle. And there are professors uh, who oppose uh, this rush uh, to the bottom of the pit. Uh, but uh, it's uh, I'm not terribly optimistic for the short term. I'm putting my hope uh, in the long term that more people have become uh, aware of the corruption of the system, partly thanks to the internet, thanks to programs like yours, thanks uh, to uh, social media, uh, and um, that eventually we will manage to throw some of these uh, criminal uh, politicians out of office. But you re remember a uh, sentence uh, attributed to Kurt Tucholsky uh, of Germany in the 1930s, or also to Emma Goldman, uh, uh, who migrated to the United States. Uh, you'll never know who actually said it first. But the um, statement was in German originally, and translated into English is, if elections uh, would change anything, uh, they would be abolished. And that gives you a view of what uh, our democracy comes down to. I mean, uh, our democracy is not a democracy, it's an oligarchy. People are not consulted. People are systematically lied to. Information is suppressed. So when you're making a decision, you're making the decision on completely in, uh, inadequate information. You don't have the facts. And uh, those people who dare dissent, who dare try to give you the uh, facts, are being persecuted, are being um, fired. I mean, I just learned of a professor at Max, Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg, where I worked uh, in the team of the Encyclopedia of Public International Law many years ago. And... Uh, I worked on the Professor Rudolf Baumhardt, uh, it's like a father to me, he was a wonderful man. And I worked under Professor uh, Karl uh, Döring, who wrote the preface uh, to one of my books, uh, as the case may be, that doesn't exist anymore. And a professor now, it was last week, was fired for pro-Palestinian tweets that the professor had put out. Not something that he had written, you know, on the letterhead of the Max Planck Institute. No, no, in his private um, 
uh, uh, tweaks. And I mean, if I had finished my habilitation in Germany, uh, I was going to be habilitated in, in Cologne. Uh, instead of that, I came to the United Nations. You know, I had uh, three options. I could have stayed in Max Planck, uh, done a, um, a habilitation in Cologne, or come to Geneva, and I came to Geneva. But if I'd stayed in Germany, either I would have been fired as a professor, or I would have been neutralized. There is no academic freedom in Germany today. And as a matter of fact, um, I had an invitation to give a series of lectures uh, in Germany, four of them at 1,000 euros apiece. And I told them, sorry, well, Germany has become a totalitarian government. Germany uh, does not have guarantees of academic freedom. And uh, I am not going to weigh each word. I am not going to please the censors or please an audience who just wants to hear something and not something else. Either I give my opinion on an issue or I don't give it. And since there are pieces of legislation adopted over the last 10 years that penalize fake news, penalize uh, apology of war crimes, who penalize hate speech. So imagine I say what I have published in the United States, at least in the United States you can publish, um, that there were precedents of permissibility when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, before that, NATO had bombed the hell out of Yugoslavia, of Afghanistan, of uh, uh, of um, Iraq and Libya, etc., and gotten away with it. So there were precedents. Putin was not the first one to use force without approval of the Security Council, that would be perceived as apology of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Criminal offense, okay, I'm a good lawyer, I defend myself, I get myself acquitted, but it would cost me, probably, uh, because I'm not a registered lawyer uh, in uh, Germany, probably would end up costing me 50,000 euros uh, in legal fees, and I will probably waste a year of my life defending myself uh, against all sorts of ridiculous accusations. There are there's also legislation with regard to hate speech. Uh, if uh, I criticize, Professor, uh, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the American playwright? He's been a guest on my podcast, C.J. Hopkins, uh, who just he tweeted during the COVID era. Um, he called the, the health minister of Germany, referred to him as a Nazi for some of the COVID policies, and he's facing jail time now in, in, in Germany. 
know. Yeah, but he's not in Germany. In he's, Germany, or is he? He's, he is. He's been living in Berlin for twenty years, and now he he's uh, um, they um, the the courts appealed, so he was acquitted, and now the court has appealed, uh, and so he he's still facing uh, a fine or a couple months jail time for criticizing on Twitter the German health minister. So perfect example of what what you're. It talking is a about. perfect example for that reason. I told the organizers, when you abrogate all of this uh, totalitarian legislation, I'll consider your invitation. But not until then. And um, I have given Austria is not anywhere as bad as Germany. I gave two big lectures last year in Vienna. I'm invited again this year to give two more. And I am taking the risk. Uh, the last lecture I gave uh, in Germany was in 2019 at the Große Aula in Tübingen. And I did it more or less as a, uh, as a friendship to uh, the professor who invited me. And uh, they wanted me to speak on my books. And I said, no. Uh, because that will get me into hot water. You can buy the books and you can uh, read them, go ahead, but I'm not going to speak on them. And I spoke a very de decent, solid lecture on multilateralism, because I thought that will not get me into trouble. And it didn't. But if I had uh, spoken, say, on my first book, Nemesis at Potsdam, or I had spoken on my book, the Wehrmacht War Crimes Bureau. Uh, the moment you give people information that surprises them, that they're not ready to absorb, uh, you're the bad guy. And uh, I'm not putting up with that. And uh, so what else did I want to, to uh, uh, highlight? Um, Maybe just before giving you that that, that you know uh, any final thought, I, I did want to ask you before we were talking about yeah. um, Ukraine and just to get your thoughts on the specter of war. You know, we were talking about irredentism uh, this week. I, I read the report that Transnistria is uh, going to possibly ask to join Russia. We've got flashpoints like Azerbaijan and Armenia. Again, we talked about Gaza, Taiwan, and China. You know, Venezuela, Guyana. Um, and there's this, in general, we've been discussing the decline of the West. You've already discussed multipolarity. What's your thought on the specter of, you know, a, another third world war if we see escalation in Ukraine and Middle East? And, well, and um, I think that ultimately uh, the West doesn't have the guts uh, to do it. That is, um, if the West were to use, um, uh, uh, tactical uh, nuclear weapons, uh, their response uh, from Russia would be massive. And then that would escalate into a third world war, no doubt. I have a fear that if um, Germany or uh, uh, United Kingdom uh, give F-16s and uh, long-range missiles to uh, Kiev, and those are used, and they kill a substantial number of people uh, in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, that that uh, obviously will 
lead to massive retaliation without a doubt. Uh, and that can, of course, get out of control. On the other hand, F-16s are complicated machines. It takes a long time to learn how to fly one. And I don't see that happening in the next few months. Uh, Ukraine just lo lost Adivka and just lost another town now. Um, they don't have the manpower. Not only they, don't they have the sufficient ammunition, they don't have the manpower uh, to continue the war. Uh, and uh, I suppose that Europe and the United States uh, that are trapped in their own propaganda, trapped in their own web, um, ultimately, this will end probably like Afghanistan. Uh, we lost the war, and you just turn the page, and you don't talk about it anymore. We lost the war in Vietnam, you turn the page, Nothing happened, and uh, the government doesn't fall down, should, but it doesn't. They stay there, and they have what the uh, our brethren, uh, <laughs> the Yiddish community says, they have chutzpah. <laughs> they have a lot of chutzpah. That is, they're so daring, audacious, daunting, they don't care. Uh, they figure they've gotten away with it thus far, and they will continue getting away with it. So I don't have that uh, uh, fear uh, that we will commit that ultimate uh, error. Uh, it would only be, I mean, really, uh, a nuclear annihilation, mutual uh, uh, atomic annihilation. That would happen uh, only if Russia is uh, really existentially in danger. Uh, Russia will uh, endure attacks on Bogorod and uh, on villages uh, in. Um, uh, the South, etc. Uh, but there are certain red lines, and uh, they will not put up uh, with um, a major attack on the Kremlin. Uh, that would probably mean that Kiev will be leveled uh, if a Kiev were to be so stupid as to uh, uh, conduct a major attack uh, on Moscow. Uh, my feeling on, I listened to Colonel McGregor, and I also listened uh, to Ray McGovern, uh, the former CIA operative for 27 years, who knows what he's talking about. And uh, they are aware uh, of the danger. Uh, I am aware of the danger, too. Uh, but I somehow am less pessimistic than uh, some of these other uh, observers. And um, my hope uh, is that uh, as uh, South Africa had the uh, courage uh, to challenge uh, the genocide being committed by uh, Israel in Gaza, that the Africans 
the Latin Americans, the Indians, uh, will tell the United States and Brussels in no uncertain words, stop the nonsense because we do not intend to pay for the consequences of a nuclear war. I mean, uh, you have no right because of your internal European corral uh, to endanger the welfare of people in Mexico and in Brazil and in South Africa and in Nigeria and in Uganda and in Sri Lanka and in Indonesia. You don't have that right. And uh, if we have to break diplomatic relations with you, and if we have to stop trade with you, we will. And uh, I mean, there are still, shall we say, uh, hardball tactics that can be used. I mean, China still has almost a um, monopoly on certain rare earths. If China uh, gets sick and tired of the irresponsibility uh, of Biden and of the U.S. government and of uh, Rishi Sunak and of this moron Olaf uh, Scholz, uh, China could say certain crucial things that they have, they will withdraw it. They will no longer deliver. Uh, that uh, uh, might make things uh, a bit more complicated uh, for the United States and for Europe. But uh, as I already said, part of the problem is that our leaders, certainly people like uh, Michel and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, etc., they actually are solipsists. Solus ipsi, only me. They see me and they see their umbilical cord. Uh, they are not aware that other people see matters entirely different. And uh, Ursula von der Leyen thinks uh, that we Europeans have a mission to bring democracy and human rights to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is sick and tired of this neocolonial mentality. They see it as arrogance, they see it as hubris, they see it as sheer stupidity. And uh, the Chinese are very patient. They have put up with this crap for decades. And they're willing to put up with the crap for more decades, but I mean, there are red lines and uh, the US should not cross them. I mean, we crossed them in Ukraine, and that triggered the war. And you can't say that Putin did not warn the West. I mean, he had his 130,000 troops on the border for a good two months before the attack. So it was not like he was hiding them. It was not a blitzkrieg. Uh, and... One thing I wish everybody would read, and if you don't have them, I'll send them to you by email, and then you can send it to your listeners. 
the two draft treaties that Lavrov put on the table in December 2021 to prevent an armed conflict with Ukraine. And if you read them, they're moderate, reasonable, well anchored in the United Nations Charter, completely compatible uh, with the object and purpose uh, of the United Nations, completely compatible uh, with Article 2, Paragraph 3 of the Charter, just aiming at a mutual security architecture in all of Europe. You don't bother me, I don't bother you. Uh, like to cooperate, but don't threaten me. Don't encircle me. And uh, provided for guarantees uh, of uh, the territorial integrity uh, of Ukraine, uh, the Donbass would not have been recognized as independent states by Russia, which Russia only recognized them on the 22nd of February 2022, and the war started two days later. Uh, but that was precipitated by the fact that uh, mid-January, Shelinsky signed an order to retake Donbass and Crimea by force. So a complete repudi repudiation of the Minsk agreements. Exactly the opposite of what the uh, Minsk agreements provided for. And uh, the fact that, as you can read in the reports of the OSCE uh, special mission, uh, the number of Ukrainian uh, attacks uh, on uh, Donetsk and Lugansk quadrupled uh, in the months of January and February. So uh, it was a hot war already before the Russians invaded. And what uh, your listeners should also understand, we talked about that in the first half of the program, the war did not start on the 24th of February 2022. Obviously, the war started in 2014 with an illegal, unconstitutional coup d'etat against a democratically elected, legitimate president of Ukraine, financed by the United States and Europe. And that has to be underlined, everybody has to understand that, that this is a war that started 10 years ago, not two years ago. And we have to recognize that the Russians, although they felt existentially threatened, that they tried in good faith to negotiate for eight years to try to reach a modus vivendi with the West. And the West, in its madness, decided that we are unipolar and we can tell everybody else what to do. And uh, the world has evolved. It's not the world 
at the time, who was Pierre Laval. Now, Pierre Laval was an opportunist. It was, uh, you know, a, a classical, uh, mediocre, um, mainstream operator. Not at all an ideologue. I mean, there was not someone who was certainly not uh, thought like the Nazis thought. Um, but he did the bidding of the Nazis. And at the end of the war, he was hung. Uh, again, uh, I have very little sympathy uh, for him because he bears an enormous responsibility for the arrival of Adolf Hitler to power. Uh, he was the man who single-handedly torpedoed Heinrich Brüning's uh, Sol Union with Austria uh, that was back in 1931 when Germany was suffering 6.6 .6 million unemployment and uh, it was because of the uh, Wall Street crash of 1929 uh, is in, was in very, very bad economic shape. So they decided uh, to have a Sol Union uh, with uh, Austria, which would have helped matters a lot. But since uh, that was a hallmark of the government of Brüning and uh, Laval brought it to fall, uh, also the government of Brüning fell. And then he was followed by uh, uh, this useless uh, Schleicher, General Schleicher, who was then followed by this idiot from Papen, uh, one of these useless aristocrats who uh, uh, he thought they could control Hitler. And it was from Papen who con convinced uh, Hindenburg to appoint, appoint. Hitler was never elected, huh? to appoint uh, Hitler as uh, chancellor. Uh, so uh, here, uh, the role of Pierre Laval was so devastating. Uh, for Europe, that I am, although I don't believe in capital punishment, uh, I don't shed a tear uh, for um, uh, uh, Pierre Laval. And uh, going back uh, to the uh, situation in Europe today, we just had the uh, uh, Munich uh, uh, Security Conference. And which gave every opportunity to the uh, uh, widow uh, of Navalny uh, to speak there. I believe you probably heard that um, the body of Navalny uh, has been given to the family of Navalny, uh, to his mother, uh, and that the uh, published results of the uh, autopsy uh is that he died uh, of a blood clot it came out today now is it true i don't know uh was he murdered i doubt it i mean in a situation like that there's one question that I, as a historian i always pose the question that cicero already posed in his defense of milone uh back uh, 2,550 uh, years ago. Qui bono? Who benefits from all this? Putin had nothing to gain from it. Zero. Navalny was not a danger to Putin. 
he was he did he had a very limited following in Russia. I mean, he was made into a star in uh, Western and American media, but not in Russia. And he would not have posed any danger to Putin's power. The best thing was to keep him quiet away from Moscow. So he wanted him alive, but bottled up. And uh, killing him was giving the Western powers a windfall. Uh, so Putin certainly would not have ordered his uh, elimination. Uh, other people in the Russian government don't think so. I don't see the added value. Whereas what I do condemn, what I do decry, is that no sooner did the Russians publish the news that Navalny had died. Immediately, Biden calls him a murderer. And uh, the same thing, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, just uh, wallowed uh, in insults and in accusations. And I must say, as a lawyer that I am, uh, as someone also with modicum of common sense, uh, I would say, let's wait to have some hard facts before we start mudslinging. Uh, I don't know what happened there. I mean, I have had blood clots. I was in intensive care for a week. I had a very serious uh, lung embolism that very easily could have taken me. And then I had a second one. And after the second one, I'm on uh, blood thinners every day. I mean, until I die. I'm a recidivist. Uh, so I consider that it is possible. The man is in a special prison where conditions are certainly not ideal. And unfortunately for a blood clot, for a lung embolism, the symptoms. You're fatigued. What else is new? Or you're a little bit of out of breath, like if you take the stairs up and down, up and down. You're out of breath. Is that a symptom that will tell you that you're close to death? Of course not. Most people say, oh, I'll just lie down and rest for a while. And that's it. And then you die. Tons of people die of blood clots. So it is one possible scenario. I'm not saying it's correct, but it's a possible scenario. It's... Uh, by contrast, take the blowing up of the North Stream pipelines. Cui bono, the United States. Clearly, the United States. Not only that, the United States, Biden was stupid enough to announce it. That, uh, you know, if Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, the uh, uh, pipeline would be no more. Before that, they had done everything in their power to prevent the completion of the pipeline. 
They put sanctions on the uh, companies that were building the uh, the pipeline, etc. And even the the great uh, um, firm here in Switzerland, so it's a Swiss firm, uh, bailed out because of the uh, sanctions. And then the Russians did it. They actually did it themselves. And now we blew them up. I have not seen anything anywhere as close as coherent, as convincing as the report of Seymour Hirsch mm -hmm. on the blowing up uh, of the um, uh, of the pipelines. The United States had the motive. It had the capacity. It could hide it well <laughs> at the time of the big NATO exercises uh, in the Baltic. So every finger points at the United States. Yeah, and in fact, early on, shout out to my regular guest on geopolitics, Vietnam veteran Bob Moriarty. Um, early on, he said it was the CIA. He flew 800 sorties in Vietnam. He's, he's living in France now. And uh, I think Putin on the Carlson interview said it was um, the CIA. And, you know, we talked about Assange, Navalny, uh, you know, Gonzalo Lira, who I interviewed on the on this podcast less than two years ago. Chilean American uh, died under suspicious circumstances um, in, in Ukraine. And um, Professor, this has been uh, a, a master class, uh, you know, the kind you get at Geneva School of Diplomacy. If people want more, sign up to be a student, get a bachelor's or master's degree at Geneva School of of Diplomacy. We've we've covered the waterfront. Um, and, you know, I, you know the, the, this is the kind of stuff I get from from you as a student, uh, Curtis Dobler and other great professors, maybe who would prefer to remain uh, unnamed. I won't name them, but uh, Pretty, I missed mentioning Curtis. He's a friend. And I admire Curtis Dobler so much. He has so much courage. I cited him several times in the human rights industry. And uh, I must say, I had lunch with him the other day. I I think very highly of him, of his work, of his books. And uh, he's very hardworking. Huh? And um, he's a man of ethics. He's a man with a moral compass. And when I talk about moral compass, here is another man with a moral compass, Jimmy Carter. This is a book uh, that he gave me when I went to visit him in uh, the Carter Center. I spent a week there and I had the opportunity of speaking with him and with his late wife, uh, uh, Rosalind. And um, we can have peace in the Holy Land. It's a very good book. Then he has another one that I like a lot, which is uh, our endangered values. And it's, that's what it's it. The Europeans talked about European values. What values? They have betrayed them all. And Jimmy Carter is warning us that if we continue doing the things we're doing, our values are out the window. And uh, one more uh, book to bring to the attention of your readers and your viewers, Frederick Heffermill, The Real Nobel Peace Prize, A Squandered Opportunity to Abolish War. He analyzes the uh, last will and testament of uh, Alfred Nobel, the creation 
of the Nobel Peace Prize. The first recipients, like, of course, Henri Dunant, the founder of the International Committee of the Red Cross, like Bertha von Suttner, uh, the uh, German uh, author and peace activist. Um, and this book impressed me a great deal because it's very systematic and it goes through uh, all the recipients uh, of the Nobel Peace Prize since the beginning. And he makes a very thorough criticism especially when the Peace Prize went to people who did not deserve them because they had done zero for peace. As a matter of fact, the price has gone to warmongers. Kissinger the Obama. Price, the price has gone to so many undeserving individuals so that if anyone uh nominates you to the Nobel Peace Prize, you know that your chance is like zero because in the last few years, it has only gone to persons who have served the interests of Washington and Brussels. Not always, not always politicians, also journalists. Uh, who have, shall we say, undermined uh, the peace initiatives uh, of the United Nations and who actually have contributed to this culture of hatred. Because uh, why is it that we are supposed to hate the Russians? Why are we supposed to hate the Chinese? Uh, there's a wonderful passage in Erich Maria Remarque's uh, book, All Quiet on the Western Front, where the little German soldier, Paul Boimer, uh, goes back home and he sees a prisoner war camp full of Russians. And he says, all these kids, you know, they're just like me. I mean, uh, they're, you know, they're playing ball. They're doing things. It says, why am I supposed to hate these people? And then the, the most moving, uh, most revealing uh, moment is uh, when he jumps in the trench and quite neither automatically stabs uh, the young uh, Frenchman in the trench. And then he realizes what he's done. And, you know, sometimes when I think of it, he holds him in his arms until he dies. It's, it's, a, it's a breathtaking moment because he realizes the absurdity of this war. There's no reason whatever a German boy should be fighting a Russian boy or a um, French boy. It's just the idiots, the politicians uh, who, who, who have just first lied to them, indoctrinated them, uh, and then sent them into the meat grinder. And um, there's also poetic justice at the end. Um, there's no hope. And it ends 
when he falls, killed, just before the end of the war. And when they turn him over, he's smiling. He's been released. The madness is behind him. He's dead. But it's over. I mean, and, and the sad thing is, here you have a book, a great book, did not prevent the Second World War. Then you have George Orwell, which is 1984. It has not prevented us from creating our own totalitarian dystopia. We're living exactly what George Orwell predicted. And our pundits in the Heritage Foundation, in the Trilateral Commission, in the Council of Foreign Relations, keep going straight toward apocalypse. They're blind. And I must say, I am a practicing Catholic. I never give up hope. I do pray uh, for uh, peace in the world, for peace and reconciliation. But if you want to have reconciliation, you must have the capacity to understand the other guy. You must have the capacity to put yourself in his or her skin, to put yourself in his or her situation and decide, why are we fighting this? Why don't we just sit down? Basically, we have 99% in common. We both like to eat well, to sleep well, to have our families and our kids and our grandchildren and we want to play and we like sports, etc. We have almost everything in common. And then because of an idea or an ideology uh, that we are going to kill young people, I mean, it, it, it is breathtaking, breathtakingly stupid what we have been doing. And as I say, I hope that uh, the good sense uh, of uh, Jimmy Carter uh, will eventually win the day in Gaza. I mean, his program, uh, Palestine, peace, uh, not apartheid, uh, impressed me a lot when I read it. And uh, I hope that the International Court of Justice will vindicate what Jimmy Carter uh, says there, both in the advisory opinion and the last day of hearings was today, with regard to the advisory opinion on apartheid in uh, in the occupied territories, and certainly uh, the genocide case, which is far more important. I recapitulate: it is not only uh, Israel that is committing genocide; the United States and Europe and all countries that are delivering weapons uh, to Israel and facilitating the genocide are complicit. In the genocide, Article Three, Paragraph uh, E, and pursuant to Article Nine, every country can send it up to the uh, International Court of Justice for an immediate examination of the question: Is the United States complicit in genocide? Is France complicit in genocide? Is Germany complicit in genocide? And I do not see the International Court of Justice answering anything else, but yes, they are complicit.
Professor, it's I, I love how as the years go by, you become more outspoken. Uh, and so keep up doing keep doing the work that you're doing. Um, people can find uh, more of your work, of course, at, at your website, get your books, your Twitter X, all the links are in the description. And my blog. And my your, blog. Your blog, the link is in the description. Hey, and they can also... Rights, human they, Rights Corner. And they can become a student uh, at Geneva School of Diplomacy uh, as well. Right. Uh, it's, it's always great to have you on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.